Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Gary Mansfield, and welcome to this, which is the preview episode of the Mizog Art Podcast. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different artist. Now, let's begin by banging these bongos. I've only gone and got myself a podcast. Now, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Gary Mansfield. I am an artist and a curator. I know you wouldn't think so by my accent, and you could well be thinking that someone's left the art world's back door open and I've just sneaked in. But believe me, we have got good times ahead of us. At the moment, the Mizog Art Podcast has 58 confirmed artists from every genre that the art world has to offer. We've got fine artists, we've got urban artists, neon artists, performance artists, graphic designers, fashion designers, painters, makers, printers, anything you can think of. Most of these artists are those that I have collaborated with, are friends with, or just have associated in some way. We have got, without question the best list of confirmed artists out there, pop over to www.mizogart.com and you'll see a list of the 58 artists mentioned all in alphabetical order. At the bottom of that list, you'll see a subscription form. If you just fill that in and send it off to us, we can then send you a little email telling you when and where to find the next episode. So as I say, this is a preview episode. It will just be telling you what Mizogar is about and who I am, Gary Mansfield. Now, when I was in the studio, I wouldn't listen to music because it distracted me. So I'd listen to talk-based radio, be it Radio London, Radio 4. But about 18 months ago, I got into podcasts. I started listening to the Adam Buxton Show and Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces, both of whom have had artists appear on their podcasts. 
Now, I went looking for arts podcasts. There are a few out there, but none of them are regular interview-based podcasts with artists. And when I happened to be having a little whinge about that fact to one of my friends, his reply was, we'll start one then. I had my own little crash course love affair with YouTube to find out how to work this equipment and how to produce a podcast. It was quite a learning curve, and I do apologise for taking you with me on some of that learning curve. But I've recorded six to date. I have had technical difficulties along the way. I have had equipment go down on me, but luckily I've had a backup recording on my phone. So the first few are a little journey. I apologise for that. So these podcasts aren't going to be aired in the same order in which they were recorded. The first to be aired is conceptual painter Dougie Fields, who describes himself as a maximalist painter. The second being Patrick Hughes, renowned for devising the reverse perspective manner of painting. Third is Ray Richardson, fine artist from South East London, who was described as the Martin Scorsese from the art world. Now, this podcast hasn't been recorded as yet. It should be recorded next week when I'll be in his studio sitting for him as he uses my image in one of his portraits. And at the same time, we will be recording our podcast. How cool is that? The other four I've got recorded will be going out in a non-specific manner. That is Miss Cy Sapsford. We recorded hers just last week in her Kilburn studio. We've got Mad in Chiswick, Carrie Reichart. Just as mad in Chiswick, Mr. Bob Osborne. And then we have good old James Gray. Now, James Gray is an emerging artist who's being championed by Cafe Art. Cafe Art being a small organisation that helped the homeless and the vulnerably housed. I'm intending to do most of these recordings in the artist studio. When you listen to a podcast, most of them are done in a recording studio, be it a professional or makeshift. Chris and Stu's hardcore listing podcast, for instance, is made in Stu's man cave at the bottom of his garden. And they obviously have a good setup with great sound quality. Now that has never been my intention. I want there to be an atmosphere. I want there to be background noise. I want to be taking you into the artist studio with me. I mean, some of the studios have been very quiet. Last week, with Cy Sapsford, for instance, at the back of her studio was a small park and the school was having its sports day. Yes, the kids were running around shouting and screaming. But as I say, if I would have taken you with me and you just sat there in the corner, that's everything you would have heard. Personally, I would rather it not be a sterile environment. This last part of the podcast is where I explain more about me and my unique entrance into the art world. It will flow a little better than the first half, only because I've told this story a thousand times in the past. It was even used in a production called London Stories in the Batsy Arts Centre in 2015. I would just sit down in a darkened room and tell the audience my story. It was initially 10 to 12 minutes long, but for this podcast I've expanded the story a bit and I will be banging on for about 25 minutes. But it's a pretty good story, even if I do say so myself, and it may well answer a few questions you might have, or it might even conjure up a few more you want to ask. And if there is anything you want to ask, you can easily contact me on podcast at mizogart.com. So this last section, which will be, I don't know, 10 minutes or so, this is going to be explaining who I am, my background, and the unique introduction into the art world, which I mentioned a few times earlier. It also clears up the significance of 
Patrick, Dougie and Ray being the first three episodes aired. So I grew up in Dagnam, Essex. I was always a bit of a scallywag throughout my teens and into my twenties, by which time I was running um, the security in several West End clubs like the Astoria, Heavens, Rage and you know clubs of that ilk. But for years I'd been selling counterfeit clothing, aftershaves, perfumes, watches, etc. But by the mid-90s, which was my mid-20s, um, I would found myself bulk buying. I was the one who was supplying the guys that were selling the individual items to the general public, you know. And I occasionally got some pieces directly from the manufacturers. Now, in a conversation, I'd mentioned to one of these manufacturers that the following Saturday, which was Saturday the 2nd of July, 1994, I was going to visit some friends in Liverpool. So he had asked if on my way up, would I drop some counterfeit labels into his guys in Birmingham to be stitched into the t-shirts and jumpers, etc. I'd seen these labels many times before. They're on great big reels, thousands of labels each one. They get fed into a machine that then stitches them into the, into the clothing. He offered me a few hundred quid for dropping them off. Um, it would have paid for my weekend in Liverpool. It saved him having to get someone. Everyone's a winner, you know. It was arranged that I picked these labels up from one of his guys in a truck stop in Froak, just near Lakeside Shopping Centre. So I got to the truck stop a bit early. I ordered a cup of tea and a bacon sandwich while I was waiting for the guy to turn up. And when he did turn up, we just went outside and I took the two big bags out of the boot of his car and put them into the boot of mine. Said me goodbyes and then got in my motor. As I was looking into my rear view mirror, as I was reversing out of this parking space, I could see this blue Vauxhall being chased along the main road by a police van. As it comes speeding into the car park, I thought, well, here's a bit of uh, excitement on a Saturday morning. It slammed on its brakes and skidded to a halt next to us. But even before it stopped, the passenger's door was open and this blonde woman was already halfway out. She's jumped out of the car and started running over towards me. And even in my side mirror, I could see there was a load of armed police jumping out the back of this van. And I looked up at her and she was just screaming at me. This all happened in just a few short seconds. She was holding her hand out, holding something in her hand. I just remember she looked really aggressive. And I thought, fucking hell, she's going to try and nick my car or something. Then all of a sudden, crash, my back window went through. She yanked my door open and one of them armed police was yanking me out the car. I thought, Christ, this is all a bit excessive. So they put me in the back of the police car and we went down to Gray's police station in Essex. Handcuffed, I walked into the custody suite and up to the custody desk. The lady that had by now stopped screaming turned out to be a, uh, a customs officer. And as we stood there, she turned to the desk sergeant and said, this is Gary Mansfield. He is being arrested on suspicion of being knowingly concerned on the importation of class A drugs, namely diamorphine. Now I knew nothing at all about drugs. I'd smoked one joint in the past and that was about it. So the only words I'd said to her up until that point was my name. But I turned around to her and I went, diamorphine, what's diamorphine? And she just looked at me and went, heroin. I just lost it. I was like, heroin? Heroin? Fucking heroin? I ended up with three or four officers jumping on top of me and just dragging me off to one of the cells just to calm down. I was allowed one phone call. I didn't phone my family members or a solicitor. I phoned Sid, 
the manufacturer just to see what the hell was going on. But this was back in like the mid 90s. There weren't many mobile phones about and they definitely weren't registered to anyone. I phoned it, there was no answer. A little while later on, I phoned it again, nothing. And all I had was a mobile number of a guy called Sid. I just knew his first name. I didn't know his last name. And my alibi was, I thought it was counterfeit labels. After being in Chelmsford Prison for a year, my trial started. All I could do was stand in that dock and tell the absolute truth. I didn't exaggerate or detract from the facts one little bit. I just told them absolutely everything and put all of my faith in the judicial system. And after a trial that went on for four weeks, the jury were out for about six hours before coming back and finding me guilty. In that instance, my weld screeched to a halt and then just started falling apart. A week later, I was back before the same judge. I couldn't give any mitigating circumstances because I'd already told the truth. I knew it wasn't going to be a little slap on the wrist because the street value of these drugs was £4.2 million. But even the judge could see that I was used, used as a mule at the hands of these other people. In return, he gave me the absolute minimum sentence that he could. 14 years. Try coming to terms with that. My identity was shattering and falling apart in front of me. I could feel myself deteriorating by the day. And before I knew it, I was being shipped out to a, a high security prison on the Isle of Sheppey called Swellside. I'd heard a lot about HMP Swellside. None of it was good. As I was being processed, the con who worked in the reception area, he said, oh, you'll be all right as long as you don't go on D-Wing. Next minute, Mansfield, D-Wing. Great. There was at least one fight every single day on D-Wing. Most weeks never went by without a stabbing, which normally went unreported. But it is surprising how quick you come to terms with your environment. But that said, when you have people out here telling you how cushy the guys have got it in there with their snooker tables and their pool tables and their table tennis, their Xboxes and TVs and their free square meals a day. Let me just tell you this. Prison is a fucking horrible place. And all of those things don't mean a thing. The amount of people in there with mental health issues is through the roof. There's drug addicts in there who can't get any help. It is a degrading place with very little dignity. If you do want to try and better yourself, if you do want to leave all of that life behind and make a change, that system puts loads and loads of obstacles in your way. There is just nothing but sorrow, sadness and negativity. And the worst thing is, like I just said, you end up getting used to it you change and the odds are against you the moment you walk through that door. But after a few months of being there, I decided I wanted to try and change. I looked at myself and I didn't like what I see. I wanted to take the bits from me that I thought were, were the good parts of me, put them to one side and work on the bits that I didn't think were good. So this was mid nineties, computers 
were just becoming popular and I knew nothing at all about them. I thought that's what I want to do, I want to try and get on the computer course. But to get on a course you had to be in like the education department anyway. The computer course was full and there was vacancies in the art class. So I thought I'd just jump in the art class just until a vacancy comes up in the computer course. I had no interest in art. I'd not drawn since I was at school and I had no intentions of starting now. But the art tutor, Douglas Spooner, even by the end of the first day, you could see just how passionate he was about teaching art to, to us lads. Some of the lads would give him shit, but it would just sort of bounce off him and he'd come back with a smile. And by the end of the week, I'd noticed that the, the one thing that he enjoyed even more than teaching was when he saw one of us learning. You could see the pride in his face when one of us just asked a relevant question. And apart from being an excellent tutor, he was also really funny, sarcastic, and even though he was a prison tutor, and he had quite a distaste for authority from pretty early on. He'd always reminded me of like a Camp Basil Forty. An exercise for this art course was to find a photograph portrait in a newspaper and just draw it. So obviously mine was coming out awful because I didn't know what to do, how to start, where to start. But my frustration was getting the better of me. But he just come over and spent 10 minutes with me and just explained a method, a drawing method that he uses. It was only meant to be an exercise for that session of the art class. But having a bit of an addictive nature, I ended up taking that photograph of Stephen Burkoff back to my cell and just spending hours and hours and hours on it over the weekend. And I went back in Monday with this pencil portrait that I'd done. And when I showed Dougie, he nearly bloody cried when he saw it. And that's what infused me to stay in the art class. The next week, there was a, a similar exercise where we had to find a painting in a newspaper and recreate that painting. I came across an article about the clothes designer, Zandra Rhodes, and in the background was a small painting by Dougie Fields. It was a very angular portrait of, of what looked like a mannequin with a leg cut off in a surreal environment. So I started to recreate this painting on paper. And when I was reading the article, it mentioned in there that Dougie Fields was an artist that lived in Earl's Court. I liked Dougie Fields' painting. I didn't know whether Dougie Fields was a famous painter or not, or how well known he was. I went up into the library and they had nothing on him in there. Well, they had very little art books up there anyway. How I could get information on this guy was just in a newspaper in a photograph, or his, his artwork was in a newspaper in a photograph. So I thought I'd chance just writing to him. My granddad used to be a postmaster in the post office and I remember him telling me that the postman would do all they could to make sure that that letter got to the person it was meant to be going to. So I wrote Dougie a letter asking him for more information on his career and him as an artist. And I just addressed it to Dougie Fields, artist, Earl's Court, London. But lo and behold, about two weeks later, I have a big envelope turn up from Dougie Fields saying about how amazed he is that he got my letter and he, he just sent me a big press pack, catalogues from, from Japan, catalogues from shows he just had. It was absolutely amazing. So that was it. I started corresponding with Dougie Fields. Every couple of weeks he'd send me a, 
another catalogue or some more information or some print-offs that he'd made for me. Well, a little while later in the art class, we was watching a programme about composition and perspective. It was featuring Ray Richardson talking about composition and Patrick Hughes talking about perspective. Not only did I love Patrick Hughes's reverse perspective and Ray Richardson's cinematic approach to painting, what I did like about the pair of them is that they were both artists. Patrick talks very eloquently and Ray speaks pretty much like I do. That was the game changer. That's when I realised when I heard Ray speak, this art thing isn't just a middle class game. Anyone can play it. So I can't remember whether it was a BBC or a Channel 4 production. Whatever it was, I took a note of it, took a note of their names, and I've done the same again. I wrote to Patrick Hughes, care of the TV company or the station, and likewise with Ray Richardson. And again, a few weeks later, I had two letters arrive back with catalogues on their work, press packs, loads of information. Then I started corresponding with, with these two artists. Even at that stage, I genuinely thought I've stumbled across something here that could change my life. And it was those three artists that made me decide that I wanted to stop the life I was living and start afresh. I wanted to become an artist. By this point, I had about five and a half years left. And I realised that in that time, I could learn to draw, paint and sculpt. So that was it. That was my goal. I was going to become an artist. So fast forward a couple of months and Dougie comes in on a Monday morning with the Sensations catalogue. He'd been to the Sensations show at the Royal Academy over the weekend. He was telling me how exciting it was and gave me the catalogue to read. Now bearing in mind, I'd recently just decided to spend the next few years learning to draw and paint and then I got shown a catalogue of artwork that was making the headlines. There was mannequins of small children with penis noses and arsehole mouths. There was even a massive painting of Myra Hindley. That's not art. Anyone can do that. There was even a sheep cut in half. Fucking hell, there was a bloke on D-Wing in for similar. Dougie said, just give it a chance. So I did. I took the catalogue back that evening and I sat down and I was looking for it. Every time I turned the page, I'd be shaking my head and huffing and puffing. But then there was a, a postcard in there by Mona Hatoum. And it was of her artwork, No Way Too, which was just a colander with nuts and bolts filling every hole. I did think, now this is taking the piss. It was just a household colander with nuts and bolts through every hole. I thought, that's for fivers worth of materials. How can that be a great artwork? That's taken 20 minutes. But on the back, there was some text explaining about the artwork. And it just said, the colander represented Mona Hatoum's home. The holes were the, the access points in and out the country, but they'd been blocked, stopping her going home. And I don't know if it's just where I was at the time, but, but that sort of resonated with me. And I just thought, Christ, she's explained all of that with a bag of nuts and bolts and a colander from under the sink. Within two minutes, I'd gone from thinking it was a pathetic piece of art to one of the best I've ever seen, just by understanding the concept. Then that was it. 
I opened the book up from the start and I saw each artwork with a fresh set of eyes. Now I was finding this artwork exciting. I didn't fully understand what I was looking at, but I knew that I liked it all of a sudden. Next day, I went back, got Dougie to photocopy this book for me, page for page. Went up the library, see what they had on conceptual art. But their art section was shocking in the library. It just consisted of uh, like how-to books. One of them, ironically, being Rolf Harris's Cartoon Time, which he can read himself at the moment. But there was nothing. But in the back of the Sensations catalogue was a list of all the artists that had taken part and the galleries that represented them. There was a bent solicitor in Swellside called Craig. He used to give me the Guardian art section every week. And in there was a listing of shows that run at the moment in the London galleries. A majority of the artists at this time were with White Cube, which made it a bit easier. So I wrote a list of about 30 artists, found out which gallery represented them, and wrote quite a polite and humble letter to each artist, asking them again for information on their career and their artwork. I did think that sending so many letters out, I'd get quite a few replies back. Douglas thought it was hilarious me sending all these letters out. But the first letter I had back was from Sarah Lucas and Angus Fairhurst, who were a couple at the time. They were pretty much welcoming, welcoming me to the art world. They wrote a really kind letter with lots of information about themselves. Again, catalogues, press packs. I never knew how well known these artists were. I knew that they was in this exhibition that was making the headlines, but that was about it. The following day, I got a letter from Gavin Turk, closely followed by Gary Hume, Tim Noble and Sue Webster, Mark Wallinger, Ron Muick, Matt Collishaw, Abigail Lane, Fiona Ray, Dexter Dalwood, Rachel Whiteread, Mona Hatoum herself. I couldn't believe that all of these people had taken time out to write a letter to a guy that was sat in prison. And for all they know, could have been a murderer or a rapist, but it was just someone asking for a little bit of help. And they gave it without question. And in correspondence, these artists would say, oh, try this artist, try that artist. Then I'd get a letter from an artist that I'd not even written to saying that they was talking to so-and-so and, -so and I come up in conversation and would I like to know about their artwork? I got correspondence and catalogues from Bruce Nauman and Cindy Sherman in America, Vivian Westwood. It genuinely was support like I'd never seen before. Many of these artists corresponded with me throughout my sentence. They put me on their gallery mailing list, so sort of weekly and monthly I would get catalogues and press packs from their galleries. And I'd go on to, to meet and become friends with quite a few of these artists upon release. And each of these artists that I've, I've met and, and spoken to about this situation, they all say it was nothing. I just sent a letter to someone who asked for some information. It was a tiny little thing to them, but it absolutely changed my life. I wouldn't be sitting here now if it wasn't for those people. They, without question, changed my life and give me a whole new identity. And just like history repeating itself, when I was asking the artist to take part in this Mizog Art podcast, 
I didn't want to ask any of them in person. Again, I wanted to do it all in text. I wanted to write to each artist and ask. Some would be email, some would be a text message. And over the next few years, I kept in touch with most of these artists. It might only just be a, a Christmas card or a letter every now and then, but it was a lifeline for me. Near the end of my sentence, I ended up going to a college in Aylesbury. We had days out to galleries in London, but I would go and meet a few of these artists just to introduce myself and say thank you. On Wednesday, the 3rd of October 2001, after seven years, I was released. I walked through those prison gates, a free man, at 18 minutes past nine. By 11.30, I was having my first lecture at the University of East London for my fine arts degree. Walked straight out of one institution and in two hours, I was back in another for another three years. That is some fucking juxtaposition. And even now, all these, all these years later, when I relay this story, I do think to myself, if, it, if you'd seen it in a, in a film or read it in a book, you'd think it was a little bit over the top. So I'm hoping to document it in some way with this podcast. So if anyone's actually still sitting here and listening to this after all this time, if you go over to www.mizogart.com, you can subscribe there and get a little heads up as to when the first episode's coming out and where you can listen to it. You can follow me on any of the social medias, which is Mizogart, M-I-Z-O-G-A-R-T. And if you've got any queries or anything you want to say, please drop us a line at podcast at mizogart.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Ta-da! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.